Welcome to Where Are You From? I'm your host, Jake Nelko. Today's guest is Ben Robinson. I met Ben through his role as pastor of Urban Grace Church in downtown Tacoma, Washington. This episode was recorded in March of 2017 as a practice run, but the conversation was a fruitful one that I wanted to share about Ben growing up in Indiana, spending some of his adult life in Spokane, and then spending some highly impactful years in Cairo, Egypt. We spent time talking about how Ben mostly grew up on college campuses, and also what it was like to live in Cairo during the Egyptian Revolution in 2011. This episode was recorded on the first day of the March Madness Men's College Basketball Tournament. So just know that we don't typically get together for beers before noon on Thursdays. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here we go. First of all, I'll note that the drink of choice is a Georgetown Porter. That's right. Um, and if you're paying attention earlier when I said it's 10:49 a.m., that's not a. And there's good not... reason. This isn't a normal Thursday morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, but today is the best holiday of the year. The the year the day I look forward to the most, which is the opening round of March Madness. Yeah. And so I take off work and watch basketball. And we're in Pacific time. So That's right. there's no option but to start drinking beer before I know, noon right? on I, this day. I actually had a lot of... I was, I was hoping that the game started slightly later because I got like a sermon to write. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, well, maybe I'll just Great. squeeze in an hour or two of work. But they start at nine. So yeah. again, not something to actually complain about. Yeah. And, and much better than uh, I spent six years living in Cairo, Egypt when the games were in the middle of the night. And there was the American embassy had this like sort of like a villa for people who worked at the embassy, which my wife Emily was working in the embassy at the time. So we had access to it. And in there they had a bar. So I was friends with the bartender and I would for $10 an hour, he'd keep the bar open and then I would stuff with people. So I'd have like 20 people hanging out all night watching basketball in Cairo at like three in the morning. We'd all be up watching basketball. Which was fantastic, aside from the fact that church was Friday morning and this was Thursday night in the middle of the night, so I'd have to make it to church after a long late night of watching basketball. But you know, sacrifices. Yeah, and I'm sure some of your best work. Yes, yeah, that's right. After those, that's days. right. Uh huh. So, so Ben, where are you from? Oh, that's a good question. I actually think that. I could give locations, but no specific place would be as influential as a college campus. Because so I lived, I was born in Chicago and then moved to Indiana and then to little town in Indiana and then to Spokane, Washington. But throughout that, from ages 5 to 22, I lived on a college campus and I think that had much more influence than the city or town that I was living in. Yeah. Because that there is such a strong campus culture that that was my backyard. Yeah. Why did you live on a college campus? Oh, because my father was worked at a university. Okay. He worked at two different universities and uh, had we had on-campus housing. Okay. And, and he was the president. Yes, he was, which to is be why, fair. He was the president, which yeah. is why you asked. And that's also important because... For 
periods, particularly when I was age five to 12, we lived in this huge, I guess you'd have to call it a house, but it was really uh, a space meant to entertain. And we had receptions there. It felt like one, maybe two nights a week. Yeah. So it was like a completely normal thing for me to like walk out of my bedroom and see a bunch of people dressed up downstairs. Yeah. So I had it. Our house wasn't quite like a normal house. Yeah. Both in the physical layout, but also in the way that it functioned. Mm-hmm. Like, I think people could sort of book it for an event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, But those events were all, they were always events that your dad was at. Yes, my okay. parents were at. They were hosting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. some of them, the ones we liked the best were the students, because the students, of course, want to pl- hang out with the elementary school kids, because yeah. they're, you know, and we were uh, reportedly cute. <laughs> and students liked us. I mean, yeah. and as did like the older folks, but yeah, we had the most fun with the college students because some of them were usually like our babysitters too. Yeah. So. Yeah. At what age did you move from Indiana to Spokane, Washington? Twelve, I believe. Yes, it would be twelve at the summer after sixth grade. Okay. Which was a, actually a great natural transition because at that point elementary school went through sixth grade in both the little town in Indiana that I was moving from and Spokane, Washington, where I was moving to. Okay, cool. And then when you graduated from high school, you stayed in Spokane. Yes, yes. Almost somewhat tragically. I mean, not tragically, because I like Spokane. I I would have preferred to go to a school that my father wasn't the president of, (laughs) but I had... But that preference must not have been too strong. Well, so <laughs> you ended up yes, going to yeah, Whitworth. exactly. So I actually I almost went to to UPS. That was the second most likely school. Okay. For me, I think that I wanted to go to a, a school where I could ski because I love to ski, and very so I important. wanted to be in the mountains. Very important. And attribute. and I wanted to go to a liberal arts school, and part of that is because I got uh, a tuition break or free tuition at small liberal arts schools yeah and so it was actually so more than just was, whitworth yes okay. so ups would have puget been sound among those okay. puget sound pou but as you think about how many liberal arts schools there are in the mountains in the west there are almost none in colorado yeah very few if any in utah there's mm-hmm. like one in Mo- carroll college in montana mm-hmm. and then basically a handful in oregon and washington mm-hmm. and i also sort of wanted to go to a Christian school, mm-hmm. but then I visited like SPU and learned about things like visitation hours on dorms and rules around drinking and smoking, and that seemed very infantile to me. So yeah. I wanted. So back to go- then, you wanted to be the Christian that you basically are. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, like I was looking for a slightly more progressive Christian place. Yeah, and that was in the mountains, and I recognized that I was going to have to give up one of those things yeah. by going to a school that wasn't Whitworth. And I didn't want to go to the school where my dad was, but I felt like I was doing myself a disservice. Like, that shouldn't be that high of a priority. And in retrospect, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. Like, I think I would have been really happy at PLU, yeah. for example. Yeah. Well, or UPS, but, when, but when you're 18, though, those are exactly. the things that matter. Yeah, yeah, totally. And when we... My brain wasn't all the way formed yet. Sure. <laughs> you know? Well, and when I think... You know, I've, I've worked in colleges for mm-hmm. five years, if you don't count grad school. And that's one of the things I think about is the important decisions that people are making when they're 18. 
but and by you know the average i'm using air quotes yeah this like no regular american goes to college after you know obviously there are plenty of people that don't go to college yes. right after high school we, but we are already like, a segment of like yeah privileged upper we're middle white, class yeah we're people, white middle sure. class we our parents went my parents didn't graduate from college but my dad went uh-huh. so like we were basically expecting to do that so anyways and, and that, that out of the way and that actually that is one of the most distinctive things about growing up on a college campus is that everyone is very educated and I let it, I probably, that impact maybe impacted me less because when you were hanging out, you weren't like, oh, hey, what was your dissertation about? Like I had a vague idea of what my friend's parents' field of study was. I'm like, oh, religion or history or English or chemistry, something, I have an idea, Mm -hmm. but their scholarship didn't play a big part in influencing us as kids. However, there was like absolutely an expectation that you go to college and maybe grad school because it's completely normative in that social circle. Yeah. So I think that, that there, there is the expectation, oh, you're going to go to college. Yeah. And yeah, so that's the, I mean, as you were saying too, it's a very particular subset and a, a subculture that, um, relative the the privilege in that subset isn't as much economic as it is educational yeah they're certainly not poor there's correlation yes but education is the is the primary yes correlation but like in in the 90s in a liberal arts school without a huge endowment the faculty isn't making a ton of money they're yeah. very much upper middle class Americans, but mm-hmm. they're not. Uh, yeah. yeah. But they have all these incentives to go to school because a lot of them, and even among the the non-faculty, like I knew, because I used to work summers on like grounds crew and there were guys working grounds crew so that their kids could go to school for free. Mm. And because this was, you know, they're not going to make that much more working at a non non-university but they have this huge economic advantage so if you are like free education so if that's a big value and you really want to provide for your kids i knew several people that were working at the university only so their kids could go to school yeah so that again influences the whole culture of the campus not just in the professors but in the frankly in the janitors in the admins in everybody who's there loves education yeah so it's interesting that you attribute college campus to being where you're from Mm -hmm. um especially because you know most of the people i'm going to ask that question to are going to tell me a city or state or something or even just not multiple places most of the people that i have on my short list are people that grew up in one place didn't move and then went to college and then ended up here somehow whether some of them might be from here most of them aren't but um what do you attribute so, but your formative years were in Spokane. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Eastern Washington. What What's Spokane like? What was it like? What was it like then? And maybe, well, let's start with that. What was it? What was it like then? What do you remember about it? Well, initially, it was really exciting because I was a kid in the Midwest, in a little farming town of six thousand people in the middle of the cornfields. And my favorite thing to do in the world was downhill ski. 
And so my experience downhill skiing when you live in Indiana is my grandma lived in Michigan. And we would go to my favorite ski hill, Cannonsburg, which was actually just a former landfill where they made fake snow. And that was that was what we skied. So the idea of moving to the west where they had real mountains was about the most exciting thing. So that was, and I mean, as you know, here too, there is a very similar sort of cultural value of being outside, camping, hiking, backpacking, climbing, skiing. Yeah. So it definitely, and it's easier for me to see as an adult, has a particular flavor. Now I'm like, oh, it's really, really white there. Yeah. And uh, it is a little bit more conservative, less so than the rest of eastern Washington, and even a college campus is not going to be a conservative place. Sure. Right? The majority of the faculty are going to be Democrats. Yeah. So I st- Even on a Christian campus. Even on a Christian I campus. Mean, Whitworth is, I mean, it's a Christian college, but it's not the type like you were describing earlier that has visitation rules and things like that yeah that's correct i mean it would be uh particularly there's i mean as you know because you work in academia that there's a whole range of so many liberal arts universities were started with a faith background i mean including ups was methodist and plu is lutheran and and there are different degrees to which they hang on to that identity and have that identity shape their mission. The one, and I think it's sort of an artificial boundary, but that does exist is membership in the CCCU. I said one too many C's there. Three C's. Three C's, yeah. um, which is the Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very conservative group. And Whitworth is among uh, just a literal handful of more moderate schools in that like eastern in pennsylvania mm-hmm. and uh maybe messiah some of the other a little bit more progressive schools so that's not typical and the school my father was previously at was more like maybe ups 50 years ago or plu that had a a a, a heri- a christian heritage but it was less a part of the mission of the school yeah so yeah what uh, let's go back to skiing for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's come up a couple of times. What do you like about it? Um, oh, I, this is probably a bad answer. There's no bad answer yeah, yeah, when no, it comes that, to why you like yeah, a hobby. Yeah, no, no. Like one thing, I just love. <laughs> why do it? I like beer? Because it tastes good and it makes yeah. me feel happy. Yeah, <laughs> and that that is a good, you know, synopsis of it. I think as a as a kid, I had very poor fine motor skills, but I had good gross motor skills. So all the things that my friends did, and you did in school, basketball, baseball, whatever sports we played, that takes hand-eye coordination, and I was bad at it. Yeah. And however, I I had re- I balance. I could water ski and I could downhill ski. So it was something that I actually excelled at. So that was probably a part of it. And it was this very positive family thing initially, and then I got into high school and. And part of it is also probably that skiing is an area that or it gives a lot of freedom to like a 12 or 13 year old. There aren't a lot of scenarios in which a 12, 13, 14 year old today can just go spend five hours with a friend exploring like a woods 
Yeah. And you have that freedom. So I would go up because, and that would be one of the things about Spokane that would be different than Indiana is that my middle school friends and I, then my high school friends and I would just go skiing. Yeah. And we'd have, and when I was in middle school, of course, our parents take us up and then they just like let us go free for four or five hours as we like explore and play. And yeah. So. And I'll note that you and I are the inverse. Because mm. I'm very bad at any mm. at all sports that require balance, and I'm much much better at sports that require fine motor skills. Yeah, so you kick my ass at ping pong. <laughs> yeah, based on those statements. Yeah. Despite I did have about two months my freshman year of college where there was a yeah you know a inversely proportional relationship between my uh, GPA and the amount of ping pong I was playing. <laughs> so I had a minute where I could play ping pong. Yeah. Fortunately, I think I got my grades back and I was like, I got to quit playing ping pong in the yeah. lounge instead yeah. of doing homework. That's interesting that you point out how much freedom you kind of have as a, at that age playing. I feel like the place where maybe I got that freedom at, at the same age was probably at like to a certain degree in like basketball practice or something uh-huh. where my parents are in charge of me, my, but I did have a coach that was in charge of me. Yeah. And I, you know, so that maybe that relationship isn't very similar, but it's just that point where maybe you are embracing or understanding what independence is or what you care to do with it or something. I, I know, you know, it's not something I even noticed at the time. And probably in elementary school, I had because I was in a little town in Indiana where everyone knew us, I actually had a ton of freedom. You know, like I watched Stranger Things and I was like, oh, it's totally like those kids, which is also set in a little town in Indiana. We yeah. just rode our bikes around all over town and and that was fine. But it's more as an adult yeah. that I'm like, hey, wait, that's a group of 11 and 12 year olds that are all hanging out. Yeah. I'm sure they don't have that freedom, especially if you live in a city. You can't just sort of be vague, like roughly unaccountable mm-hmm. for long stretches of time. Yeah. Well, and I've thought about that too, because my, I had this, I had a similar amount of freedom at the same age growing yeah. up outside of Pittsburgh. We happened to live on at the intersection of two main roads. So it was, you know, we didn't live in a development or, you know, neighborhood mm-hmm. that would allow for that to happen more often, but... I still feel like that was happening. I don't know if it was because it was the suburbs or because it was the 90s. It seems like these days or like you know the early 2000s maybe, but we're going further and further away from our kids feeling comfortable with our kids going out and saying like come home by dark. Yeah, which but, is also yeah. interesting because, you know, they did uh, a longitudinal study because there's sort of a famous study in it was somewhere in New England in the 70s where they tracked the movement of kids or that or the late 70s, early 80s, something like that. And they just uh, a, a researcher just followed kids around to see where they went. And they were shocked to see that kids were roaming like miles around and they had all this freedom. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of an important study. So then somebody went back and like repeated it. Now to see, and they actually found the, the kids that had all that freedom, and they tracked their kids and found that they had far less freedom to like leave the yard and stuff. And they interviewed the parents and said, you know, we followed you as a kid, and you, you're, you had all this freedom, so why don't you give that to the kids? 
And all the parents were like, it's just a different world. You can't do that anymore. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. But crime has gone down significantly in the town in that, mm. in that period. So it is actually safer, but there is a perception of danger that didn't used to exist. And that is just like a really, uh, that's sort of totally aside. But as we think about where we were from and the amount of freedom that we have, it's actually safer now. We just don't feel comfortable with that safety. Let's talk a little bit about where we're at now. How'd you end up in Tacoma? Emily and I were living in Egypt, and she came to UW for grad school, and so that brought us to Seattle, and we tried to take turns, so I was the trailing spouse in that move, and I arrived in Seattle and started working in a food truck, because I was trying to figure out what to do, and uh, actually, similar on our earlier conversation, I looked at both church jobs and actually a job at a university, and ended up our buddy Robbie, who uh, had told me about Urban Grace. I saw it and I looked at it, and and I thought, oh, that that church seems like a really good fit because I had some, I both had some non-negotiables and then some strong preferences, and it fit all of my non-negotiables that had to do with sort of inclusiveness and openness, and some preferences about the way that they engage social justice and the arts and such. So, and I had actually spent a lot of time in Tacoma College because my best, two of my very close friends went to UPS. Okay. So I, I, I knew Tacoma fairly well and looked at the church and liked it. And then Emily and I came down to Tacoma. I think we were meet. I was doing some research when I knew that I was like, I don't know, one of the finalists or so. And we spent a little time, and I met with some people to sort of learn about the community. And we had a couple hours to kill, and and we ended up going into the Broken Spoke. Yeah. And just because we were looking for some time and like grabbing a drink or something like that, and I think we sat down and ended up chatting with a guy at the bar who was was great. He was from the neighborhood, and he actually wanted to be a nurse because my wife is. Uh, nurse practitioner and and he's like I don't know if I can because all my neck tattoos and Emily was like no you're you're great that's actually uh, a value so uh, I, I think in that sense we were like oh this is a cool this is a this is the a right fit for us because we enjoyed Seattle but it never felt very real yeah it, I've said before I think that yeah it, it's a Fremont was a type of neighborhood where it felt very normal to have an Audi. And that's like not a normal thing. Yeah. And we didn't want to live a life in which that was a normal thing because yeah. that's not the experience of most folks. So. Yeah. Well, I've been out here for God knows And all those black bears, they are coming. I think I kind of actually just glossed over a little bit um, the fact that you guys lived in Egypt. Yeah, so that's true. Maybe let's take a quick step back. So how'd you get to Egypt? <laughs> oh, well, I actually went there twice. The first time I was 
when I was finishing undergrad, I was wanted to move to the developing world. And, and I should be more specific. I was planning to move to South America because I'd spent a lot of time in Latin America, loved the culture and wanted to get better at Spanish. And as I was sort of preparing for that, I got offered a job in Cairo. And I think part of my draw to Latin America was the U.S.'s relationship to Latin America, particularly Central America in the 1980s. And and I thought I, I grew a lot learning about that. And which which was great. We were great friends. Yeah, 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 which was, was totally beneficial. Everything, everything we did was great. Uh-huh. Yeah, we lo- all the countries uh-huh. in Central America uh-huh. liked us a lot. Yeah, because we helped them. Uh, <laughs> that's right. I helped them see the air of uh, rulers that took care of the needs of the people uh, <laughs> and instead installed authoritarian dictators. But I, I actually was always sort of like, I wonder what it would have been like had I been in that situation and then the opportunity to move to the Middle East came up, and I was sort of like, oh, the Middle East feels somewhat similar to the way that we are interacting with the Middle East feels similar to the way we interacted with Central America in the 80s. And it also felt like a little bit less self-centered, because I was sort of going to move to South America to learn Spanish and, I don't know, date South American women, which did seem like the, the best idea. Yeah. And I had been asked to to start a youth group in an international church. And I was like, oh, I can do youth group. I've done that before. I've done youth ministry and I'll thrive living overseas. So I did that and I was able to go to school while I was there. So I did that for about three years. During that time, Emily and I had been dating going into that and then uh, got engaged and married. We then went to seminary and as I was graduating seminary, I uh, was, again, looking to move overseas and was uh, reached out to the place I had worked to ask for a reference, and they ended up offering me a job. So I returned to Cairo. So that's how I got there and ended up being there for about six years. Yeah, okay. And you went to Princeton for seminary? Yes, for, okay. uh, for seminary. Yep. Okay, cool. So you were in Cairo during the revolution. What was that like? Yeah, it's pretty hard to explain. I mean, there was certain times where it was pretty euphoric. Like being on Tahrir Square during the revolution was like an emotional hug. I think I told my mom, I was like, this is what I imagine doing drugs are like. (laughs) Just this like overwhelming emotional high as you felt all these people come together who wouldn't normally be together. And I was also, when I was there, I was working as a photographer. And so I was down there with my camera and people who would never want their picture taken would be like, take my picture because I'm proud of what's happening and I want this to be recorded. Like it felt really important. And that... In that sense, that was a really just overwhelmingly positive thing. There were, of course, some 
frightening times and some situations we were in that uh, weren't as safe as we would have wanted them to be and sometimes that were pretty sketchy. Yeah. But I think the overall the most distinctive thing was that during the, well, I don't know, about first 10 days or so, seven days, they cut our internet and they turned off our cell phones. They being the Egyptian the, government. The Egyptian government. Mm-hmm. And, and without warning. And then there was like a technically a 3 p.m. or a 4 p.m. curfew that it was supposed to be, you know, like a shoot to kill curfew. Yeah. So in our neighborhoods, this meant that we would like wake up in the morning and you had no way to connect with each other aside from just like stopping by people's houses. And we had some landlines that couldn't really call overseas, but we could call around. And so my days would just be like, I'd often like get up and go down to the square to try to get a sense for what was going on. And then you would just go visit people and check in and see how people were doing. And then people would evacuate and I'd take food and bring it to other people because there wasn't a ton of food and then in the evening, we would all, because again, it wasn't a, the most safe thing. There would be like 10 of us sleeping in the same apartment. Yeah. But at about 3 p.m., we'd all come in. And again, I, I wasn't going to evacuate the country and leave my home with a bunch of unsmoked Cuban cigars. Yeah. Or, so, or nor <laughs> our good ir- whiskey. That'd be yeah. irresponsible. And it'd be totally irresponsible. So it ended up that. It it slowed down to a pace of life that I've never really had and sort of a, a, a type of almost connectionality. And my job in the church was no longer like, you know, preaching sermons or getting services ready. I was just checking in, making sure everybody was okay, yeah. like helping their needs get met if we could, yeah. giving them information about how to evacuate if they're trying to get out of the country. And it was, there was a way in which it was almost like a bummer when our phones came back on and our internet came back on. Cause then all of a sudden, you know. Life got a little more complicated. Yeah. And I was like. Not even know. that it got complicated, it just got less simple. Yeah. Because it, you were just. And less focused internally on, focused. Yeah. yeah. So then I was much more interacting with the rest of the world and I was putting stuff on Facebook and mm-hmm. I was like interviewed for a newspaper and all the things that couldn't really happen during this minute in which we were just totally closed off from the rest of the world. Yeah. And that it was a really sort of unique experience. It felt like we were back in the 80s or yeah. sometime earlier, I don't know. What were the demographics of your of your social group at that time? Was it almost entirely all, was it almost entirely Egyptians, or were there Americans? No. Was it what was it like? No, that's a, that's a good question. So our our church and our community was very international. So it was so it was almost all working people, uh, uh, expatriates, so people okay. living abroad, English speakers that were there. So there was there was one group, and it was a lot of like oil people. Embassy people, teachers, Arabic students, NGO workers, and largely in part, the the oil and the State Department got evacuated two days in, three days in. Okay. And then the people who actually had the autonomy to be to choose to stay if they wanted were more some of the teachers, the Arabic students, the other folks. So, and what, 
was this na- um, in terms of nationality? Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking. Okay. So, like, we, I'm thinking we had some Canadians that were around from our church. As I think about, like, what our apartment was like, who we were actually staying with some of those evenings, it, there was a family who, they were American, but they'd lived in Africa for a really long time. Two of our friends that were couples where one was American and the other Australian, and maybe another American or two, another okay. Canadian. Okay. So there was there was a pretty good mix of folks, some okay. Europeans as well. So the people that were evacuating, why were they evacuating? Um... So the fear, really, I think, I mean, there were some hairy moments. Like, we were, every night, we were hearing persistent automatic gunfire. Mm-hmm. And there were tanks in our neighborhoods to prevent looters from coming in. Mm-hmm. And so it was, there was some legitimate concern about just personal safety. Mm-hmm. Though, uh, one of the most amazing things is the first night that was really the worst. It was really rough and we didn't really understand what was going on. We just heard a lot of gunfire and we still had TV and BBC and the CNN were reporting that our neighborhood, which was really teeny, like North Tacoma teeny there, like even almost the area between 6th Avenue and 21st, you know, this little square, mile and a half square that was... CNN was reporting about how there were looters coming through it, and then we were hearing gunfire, and we didn't know what was going on. Uh, so that was a scary night. And then actually, uh, we were friends with an Egyptian reporter from Reuters who called and said, hey, just so you all know, all that gunfire you're hearing are people shooting in the air to let the looters know that if they come up your street, they're going to run into people who are protecting you who have guns. That's why you're hearing that. It's warning fire. Wow. So then that made us feel much better. And was that locals that were yeah, protecting? Yeah, and, and it was just the most amazing thing the next morning because we were hearing, again, like on CNN about all this bad stuff that was happening. And curfew broke at 8 a.m. And another guy and I went out at 8 a.m. to basically assess the damage and see what had happened to our neighborhood. And we walk out and there are all these like, weary Egyptian dudes and they were like the guys that took care of our building and so we knew them all and they had set up roadblocks like every hundred meters in the street with stones and plotted plants and they're out there with golf clubs and samurai swords and rakes and baseball bats and guns and they had set up these checkpoints that you would have to get through each checkpoint and they were it was a really like the most profound hospitality I've ever had that there were all these people who are like, we're, we are literally putting our bodies before these people who are trying to get to you to protect you. And there is just this sort of like pride as we walk of them that they were able to do this for us Yeah. as we walked around our neighborhood and yeah. there was very little damage. Like it had been incredibly effective. Yeah. So that's part of the reason people were evacuating. Yeah. 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 Uh, as, as, because the, oh, and the other just side note of that, and this was the other thing that was scary. We were right next to a prison and the government, the Egyptian government had released a bunch of prisoners and there was this, uh, it's almost like a, like a term and idea, I should say, of uh, in Arabic called the Multigea. I'm saying that wrong. 
I think there's anyways, but uh, <laughs> I won't try to fix it. But it's like the idea of like thugs, but they're usually often like ex criminals or criminals are like shady dudes who sometimes get employed by Arab governments to do dirty work. Okay. And they were basically trying, they had the police. So it sounds like a Jason Statham movie. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> it was. So like, and, and, and we had seen that the police had been pulled. Like all of a sudden the police disappeared off the street and it was almost to punish the people to be like, oh, you want us to take away law and order? And we'll show you what that's like. Yeah. And then prisoners were being released. Yeah. And so there was a lot of fear in our neighborhoods. So that was part of it. Once that sort of got under control and that first day you're like, oh, we're going to be protected. We're fine. Then it was the fear of Iran in 1978, mm -hmm. that the roads to the airport, there were like three roads out of the neighborhood. One went downtown, one went to the airport, one went south down the Nile. And so one of those ended up getting shut down by sort of like an angry mob. So that was the other concern that we wouldn't be able to, even if our neighborhood was safe, we wouldn't be able to get out. Yeah. So that it was a, almost a preemptive that before it gets dangerous, we want to leave. Thinking of the, the like neighborhood militia, if you will, <laughs> you named some of the weapons they might be carrying. The guy with the samurai sword, was that the guy that like, I want to be friends with that guy? Or it's like, no, no, no. Why does this guy have a samurai sword no, in the no, first place? This guy's it, got a rake and this guy's got a samurai sword. It's great because it wasn't – I actually – I know it was a building like our friends lived in that building. And so I knew the, the Boab, and, uh, which is doorman. Okay. Bab is door in Arabic. So Boab is like the man at the door. Okay. And so you every building had somebody whose job it was to take care of the building. And every apartment in the building – paid for that guy and okay. he was around and he watched he fixed things he was sort of like a super and like a security guy and uh -huh. he just lived he had a little it'd be generous to call it an apartment a little space to live mm -hmm. in the building and so i knew the boab at that building and but these that building had a lot of foreigners a lot of is a wealthier building yeah so i'm sure that they went as things were going on, they said, hey, do you have any, like, weapons yeah. to help us protect? Yeah. And somebody was like, my son's got a samurai sword on his wall. <laughs> so they, like, grabbed it and took a samurai sword. Like, an ornamental yeah, one. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Like, in the a thing street you, fight. The thing that when you buy it and you jokingly say to your buddy, like, hey, if we ever get into a revolution, yeah, yeah, uh, give like, me a call. A and street then fight, I've got like, a samurai hey, sword. Hey, man. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it was. And then the other, funny, but not yeah, not totally funny. Like you know, not, yeah. you don't really want to be in a situation where you could use a samurai sword. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, uh, but we actually, and that's when we learned too. There were a lot more guns in Egypt than we are aware of. And actually, how's this? I, this is great. I was so I was talking to one of these guys. They'd set up this roadblock in front of the building, and I was, and so we would like bring them tea and snacks, and and mm -hmm. this was actually it was the Boabs, the doorman, and then. Uh, there, but there are about six guys. There are also people who owned building, who owned apartments in those building, Egyptians in that building. Uh -huh. And this guy, I go down there, and he's and he's got these guns, and they like are sort of fancy guns, and he's showing them to me. And I was like, "Where'd you get all these guns? Like, I didn't know people in Egypt had that many guns." He was like, "Oh, I bought this in Los Angeles." It's like, "Oh, of course, thanks, America." <laughs> he's like, "I was on vacation in Los Angeles, so I just bought this gun and brought it back with me." So that's a. Uh... I don't think that needs any commentary. No, I think I did that standalone. <laughs>
so you're in Tacoma now. Um, what are your impressions of Tacoma right now? It's been you've been here for three years, and you used to live in Seattle. You used to live in Spokane. You used, used to live in Indiana and Cairo. I mean, where Princeton, New Jersey? Princeton, yeah. New Jersey. Yeah. So Tacoma's Tacoma's where you live now. I mean, what are just a couple impressions? Yeah. Of Tacoma? No, we love Tacoma. We really like it a lot. Uh, for some of the reasons I think I'm sort of implied this or mentioned this earlier, it feels like a real place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, you can't hide from the realities that America faces and the world faces of poverty and homelessness and racism and inequality. And they're a little bit closer to the surface, which I don't think is a bad thing because it means we actually have to confront them and deal with them and, uh, and our complicity with it and how we participate and like all those issues are there. But it is also like a beautiful little city mm-hmm. right near the mountains in the water that is culturally progressive and is affordable. And it does just have a, it's got such a, the, one of the distinctives to me is how small it feels. Mm-hmm. It feels so much smaller than a city its size. And, and I, it also feels pretty stratified, especially compared to, because Spokane and Tacoma are almost the same size. And this just might have to do with my experience there, but I feel like I lived in one side of Spokane and I was frequently downtown. I was frequent, sort of like all over the city. Mm-hmm. And here it feels like we live in around the same neighborhood and the people that live in our neighborhood, we go to the same bars, we go to the same coffee shops, we go to the same gyms, I see people at the same parks, we go to the same grocery stores, mm-hmm. though I feel like... Some of the people, even in the far north end or in University Place or in East Tacoma or South Tacoma, are pretty residential to their particular neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a lot of cultural diversity between those neighborhoods. And so that, to me, gives it a smaller feel. I sort of feel like there's this sort of like downtown, hilltop, central Tacoma, just into the north end, like that that neighborhood has its own vibe and it's a vibe I really like. It also feels like a very interconnected vibe. Yeah. How is your job at a church that's active in the community and situated downtown? How has that influenced your experience in Tacoma? Oh, I'm sure it is because I've just gotten to know so many more people in one sense. And yeah, that's a good question. How has that influenced it's also, I feel much more known in this place because of my role in that church than I feel like I would certainly in a similar church in Seattle or even in another church elsewhere in Tacoma mm-hmm. because we are downtown. There aren't a ton of churches downtown, and I live in the neighborhood where the church is. Mm-hmm. I expect every time I go to the grocery store to see somebody I know, a lot of that is through church. Some are just like people who go to church or because of my role at a church that is very involved in social services and the arts and some of those things. I've made connections with people at different NGOs. I go to, We all go to the same like fundraising luncheons and <laughs> yeah. the same civic events. And so you sort of get to know the community in a way that that I feel much more like a part of the fabric of Tacoma, yeah. being at Urban Grace in Tacoma, than I think I would at a different church in a different city. 
Thanks for listening to Where Are You From? I really enjoyed talking to Ben, particularly about his experience in Egypt. As someone who knew very little about the Middle East prior to meeting them, I credit him and his wife Emily for developing the intrigue that I now have in the region. Thanks to Ben for spending some time with me. Thanks also to Andrew Cooper for our rad logo, and to Andrew Armstrong for contributing music as we speak in colors. Our theme song is titled Black Bears, and today's episode also featured the songs Holy Land and Bizarre. You can find more music from Andrew as We Speak in Colors at wespeakincolorsismi.bandcamp.com. I look forward to chatting with you next time on Where You From. Come on, it's your life. I guess we get one.